Nick Holdstock is a journalist and writer whose work has appeared in publications around the world, including The Guardian, The London Review of Books, The Independent, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Dublin Review. He is the author of China's Forgotten People and Chasing the Chinese Dream, two titles from our IB Taurus list. We invited him in to talk about what has been a growing human rights crisis in China for the past four years. We discussed the work Nick has done investigating Xinjiang, the Uyghur population, and the largest known concentration camp network in the modern world, covering the history, politics, and misinformation behind it all. Take a listen. This is the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky. I'm here today with Nick Holdstock, author of China's Forgotten People, a book about the Muslim Uyghur community who are currently being held in internment camps in the Xinjiang region of northwest China. Welcome, Nick. Looking forward to talking about a humanitarian crisis that is largely shrouded from the global community. Thank you. Um, so what motivated you to write this book? What exactly is your background? Um, well, I, I first went to China in uh, uh, 1999, and I lived there for two years in, in Hunan province, which is, you know, typical, if, this, if there is typical China, sort of central China, rice sort of field growing um, place. And um, and after two years there, I went to, to teach in uh, a city uh, on the, the western border of China in Xinjiang, a city called in Uyghur, Gulja, or in Uyghur, uh, in Chinese, it's called Ying. Um, and I went there because I knew that that Xinjiang was um, a very was going to be a very different kind of China. Um, and um, I also knew that in uh, in Gulja in 1997 there had been uh, large protests um, against the government. And you know, at that time, no foreign reporters were allowed in that region, um, and they were very. It was just it was a very sort of mysterious thing that had happened. Um, so I went there with with some intention of trying to sort of understand, you know, what, how that happened. Um, and I, I lived there for a year. Uh, and while I was, you know, being a good English teacher, um, I, you know, I, I got to sort of know as much as I could something about the town and the different communities in the town. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, it's hard to sort of convey, you know, like the the contrast between going from central China to to Xinjiang in terms of, you know, it just how different it feels uh, both then and now uh, for different reasons. Um, and you know, in terms of it being like feeling that I was walking into a part of Central Asia often in terms of, of the way people looked, the things that were sold in the markets, the languages I heard. Um, and so, so in one level, this was a very kind of a wonderful, great experience. Uh, but on the other level, there was, you know, an immediate sort of very quick sense that this was a very divided place, um, that there was, you know, essentially uh, a Han Chinese part of the town, Han being the, the ethnic majority in China, and a Uyghur part of town. And there being these very different sort of split communities um, who really barely even shared the same space within the town and when they did would almost act like the others didn't even exist um if anyone's ever read china mayville's the city in the city there was some of that sort of strange sense of of people you know just really trying to ignore each other in some ways um and you know the more time i spent in 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 culture the more i sort of began to understand some of the reasons why there was this sort of separation um, you know, sort of, you know, in terms of uh, not just government policy, um, but also the way that just individuals um, viewed each other, the way that uh, Han Chinese people had stereotypes about Uyghurs and Uyghurs had stereotypes about Han Chinese people that, you know, kind of kept them apart all the time. Um, so I was sort of quite felt strange to be in the middle of this. And you know, sort of by sort of almost the end of my sort of first year there, uh, I sort of began to understand some of the, you know, the very sort of strict restrictions that there were on, on Uyghur life there in terms of not just how they worshipped, but how their kids went to school, 
um, you know, the difficulty they had finding jobs uh, compared to Han Chinese people, um, you know, sort of very institutionalized, formalized uh, restrictions that, that in some cases were almost like a sort of system of, of apartheid. Um, so, so that was sort of my, my primary direct experience of, of living in, in Xinjiang. Um, and then, uh, you know, then I, then I left. And I guess since then I've been writing and thinking about the place and, and trying to sort of, I don't know, keep track of it and just sort of try and understand, you know, what's been going on since then. Um, yeah, so, so, so I guess I wrote, I wrote my first book was a memoir about living there called mm-hmm. The Tree That Bleeds, which is a very sort of direct first person uh, sort of almost sort of, you know, completely ignorant person's sort of viewpoint on the place. And this new book, uh, China's Forgotten People, is a sort of more sort of formal, uh, sort of semi-academic kind of view of the place in terms of the, the history and, and the culture and the politics of it. Um, so, so I guess, you know, the sort of my two books on another writing is, is trying to sort of give a sort of a more rounded sort of sense of what's happening there. Absolutely. And I mean, for people who don't know much about what's going on, can you give a quick history lesson on why Uyghurs in China are being targeted in the first place? And what exactly are the most important takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I um, I guess, you know, in terms of history, um, we kind of have to go quite far back um, and think about really the history of China it's, as a whole. And this sort of what, what you look at now when you look at China on the map, this sort of very large area, you know, is, is a, a semi sort of modern construction. You know, if you go back, you know, three or four centuries, um, you know, like China was a lot smaller, you know, in terms of, of land mass uh, and territory. Um, and it's only sort of really with sort of successive, you know, sort of dynasties, if you like, that sort of the you know that it has expanded across the map. So so I guess my point here is that that what we see as Xinjiang now, you know, on the map as part of China, you know, was you know is in some ways quite a, a semi recent sort of addition, sort of mid 18th century under the Qing Dynasty. Um, you know, before then it was sort of you know it was a region that was sometimes sort of under the control. Of you know the um, you know whoever was in charge of China at the time, and other times was sort of almost completely sort of separate. Um, and you know if you think about how long it used to take to go from say Beijing to to Xinjiang, you know sort of months essentially. You know then then you sort of understand how it could be so remote. Um, and um, there's a there's an excellent book by uh, David Brophy called Uyghur Nation, in which he he sort of he he sort of suggests that one way to think about Xinjiang as a territory is is almost like a, as, a, as a place it's almost like a treaty port place where it's it's you know the the areas that most affected it you know like what is now Kazakhstan Russia uh, India Pakistan those areas were the areas that that kind of helped shape it very much in terms of language religion culture and these kinds of things so so you know in terms of I guess the, the, the take home point from this is that, the, that Xinjiang, you know, hasn't always been a part of China and nor have the people there always been a part of China. So there is this sort of there is a sort of a, a you know, a, a cultural uh, linguistic uh, distinctness about the place. And, uh, and with that comes an identity that's separate from you know, mainland China today. Pause for breath. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, it's only really since 1949, when the People's Republic of China was founded, that that Xinjiang has been this sort of uh, cohesive territory that's been, you know, very much, you know, under the control of, uh, you know, um, Chinese, the Chinese rulers, if you like. You know, before then, it was sort of this very spotty, patchy sort of um, record. So... You know, again, that's again quite a recent thing in terms of, you know, trying to, you know, in terms of its actual integration into China itself. Um, and, and following that, you know, following, you know, 1949, there has been, um, 
you know, huge uh, changes in the region, um, one of which is like a huge demographic shift. Um, it used to be that Han Chinese in the region were, you know, roughly sort of 5% of the population um, and, and successive waves of, um, of, uh, of, sort of internal migration from central China into Xinjiang have, have shifted that demographic massively so that it's now, you know, depending on who you talk to, between sort of 40 to 50% of the population. Um, so there is a sort of, if you like, a kind of a, a colonial, a colonialization narrative there, you could argue. Mm. Um, and with that massive demographic shift, there has been, um, a shifting control over, you know, essentially who controls the land and the resources of Xinjiang. Um, like, uh, one of the, one of the big, um, elements of, of this resettlement of, uh, of Chinese, Han Chinese through internal migration was the establishment of, um, uh, uh these camps called Bingtuan, which, um, was set up for sort of demobilized soldiers as a sort of, um, it's a bit of a crude comparison, but as it's almost like a sort of kibbutzian kinds of place, you know, whereby they would control, uh, you know, the land and the resources and they would essentially, you know, sort of become sort of the major agricultural, um, to force in the region, which is, you know, in one way is you could see as the development of the region. But from another perspective, you could say that they were taking, you know, the land and resources from the people who are already living there, mostly the Uyghurs. Um, so, you know, that's a huge shift that happened as well. Um, I guess the other sort of next sort of key date is to think about the way that China as a whole changed once it opened up in the late 70s under Deng Xiaoping, you know, when suddenly the state took a step back a little bit and started to let people, you know, have businesses, uh, you know, create free enterprise, this kind of thing. And, you know, from that period, um, a lot of the inequalities, not just in Xinjiang, but throughout China began to widen. Um, you know, there are some people who were still like in the state system and there were some people who were outside and making a lot of money. Um, sort of the logical continuation given, you know, is what we can see today, arguably. Um, and in Xinjiang, um, you know, through the eighties and through the nineties, you know, there's this sort of, there was this sort of widening gap between, you know, between Uyghurs and Han Chinese, uh, again, crudely between the north and the south of the province of the region most Uyghurs being in the, the south of the region, um, that has, you know, created this sense that there's almost a two-tier system going on. Again, a little bit like a system of apartheid. Um, and, for example, one aspect of which is that um, is that some of the, the best jobs in Xinjiang have been either in the oil industry or on these, these Bingtuan, these state farms that are all over the region. And in both the, the oil industry and in these state farms, basically no Uyghurs are actually employed. Um, so they, they were kind of systematically sort of excluded from, you know, arguably the best economic opportunities that there were. Um, and then I guess that the next key date really is to think about, about 9-11 and how, you know, that made, you know, that made many regimes around the world think that they had an opportunity or a narrative, if you like, that um, they could use to deal with, you know, their own internal dissent, um, especially if um, if they were if those people were Muslim. Um, and since sort of 9-11, um, essentially the Chinese government has been arguing that it's been targeted by by sort of Uyghur uh, fundamentalist terrorists who want to separate uh, Xinjiang from the rest of China. Um, so, you know, if you put all these things these things together, there's a sort of there's, there's a distinctiveness between, you know, Uyghurs and Han, you know, culturally, linguistically. Um, there's, you know, a sense of grievance and disparity, you know, economically and culturally between Uyghurs and Han. And then there's the things that the state has been doing, particularly since 2002, which have further aggravated this sort of uh, the tensions and the resentment between Uyghurs and Han uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the region. Um, and when I say Uyghurs, what I should really be saying is Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Hui, and other people, because there are there are many ethnic groups in the region. Right. 
but but the Uyghurs being the majority, you know, there's sort of it, it, that's the way we tend to talk about what's happening in the region. So you've described the some of the reasoning behind the government cracking down on the Uyghur community in the Xinjiang region is, do you feel that there, what exactly do Uyghurs want? Do you feel like there's a consensus or is there more of a plurality in the community? Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's been, it's been a great question for, for decades. Um, and it's, it's essentially it's unanswerable because nobody really has access to enough people in Xinjiang who can actually give a, a free answer to that question. Um, you know, uh, the most vocal people from the region have mostly been outside the region um, for understandable reasons. Um, so organizations like the World Uyghur Congress uh, and, and others, you know, who claim to speak for Uyghurs within China. And some of those organizations have claimed that what Uyghurs want is um, full independence. Some of them have claimed that they Uyghurs want uh, autonomy within China. The, um, the the full official name of Xinjiang is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, mm-hmm. uh, which which like the Tibetan Autonomous Region suggests that you know legally these regions should have a little bit more you know as the word says autonomy. Um, so you know there has been a sort of there have been different sort of positions occupied about on that continuum between autonomy and and full independence. Um, In terms of what most people actually want who are living in Xinjiang, as I say, it's, um, you know, it's not not exactly uh, possible to say. I mean, to sort of flip the question, um, it's maybe easier to say what they don't want. You know, they don't want to be put into internment camps. They, They want to speak their own language. Um, they want the freedom to worship. They, they want jobs. You know, they basically want the sort of, you know, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say they basically want the same things that people all over the world want to be able to do. Um, but, but as I say, for a number of institutional reasons and, and policy reasons, they, they, they just haven't been allowed to do. So mentioning the internment camps, it's now predicted we're not, so clear on these numbers, but it's predicted that there's up to a million Uyghur people in these quote unquote re-education camps. Um, what exactly, if you know anything at all, is actually going on in these re-education camps or internment camps? Yeah, I mean, the the numbers are, you know, a sort of things that we're still arguing about. And I think some quite reasonable people now are saying that it may be two million who, are, who have been in these camps. However, um, from from what we can tell about the camps, um, because obviously the journalists are not allowed in there, um, they it's a place in which every aspect of people's daily life um, is is controlled um, from the moment they wake up early until you know until they go to bed. You know, uh, people don't have any any privacy, uh, and they're forced to conform to a very tightly regimented um sort of schedule ranges you know so in the morning for example you know the people have to attend a, a flag raising ceremony um and then they have breakfast and before breakfast they have to give up like a pledge of of allegiance to to the nation and to and to affirm the the all-seeing goodness of the communist party um you know they so and then after that they spend most of the day um, either watching political films or being forced to, um, you know, forced to take Mandarin classes because um, some Uyghurs don't speak very good Mandarin, it being their, their second or third language. Um, and there are study sessions in which people have to confess their mistakes. Um, they have to say, you know, they're encouraged to say, oh, in the past, I went to the mosque too often or uh, in the past, I used, I did this or I said this. And they have to sort of show some sort of contrition and repentance. Um, and people, some people who, who don't do this, we have reports that they are, you know, put under both mental and physical duress. Um, you know, there have been allegations of torture, starvation, 
um, beatings, all kinds of things like this. Um, and then there's another meal in which people again have to sort of stand up and pledge their allegiance to, to the government. And then, and so it goes on and on, you know, days, weeks, months of this. And, you know, it's probably quite hard for, for any of us to sort of actually fully understand how terrible this is. Um, you know, but, you know, it's, um, so the, I guess my point is that the effects of this are likely to last a very long time, even for people when they are released from these camps, you know, the psychological scars of this are, are not going to go away. Um, so th- these camps are, you know, have been built very quickly and sort of, they only really date from sort of 2016, 2017. Um, and they, um, from the outside, you know, although they're called re-education centres, they, they look like prisons. They have barbed wire around them. There are armed guards there. People are not allowed to leave. They may occasionally be, be given, allowed visitors, um, but it is absolutely basically like a prison, even though nobody in those places has been actually charged with a crime. Um, their reason they're there is because they've committed some kind of sort of apparent sort of political misstep or some social misstep or uh, or because they for example i mean there's there's a, there's a long list of semi arbitrary reasons like uh your bed was too long you have too many knives in your house you have too much food in your house you uh you have a friend in a foreign country who messages you on whatsapp you've been to a foreign country or you are related to someone who has done any of these things so you know, there is there's, essentially the authorities have thrown a net over over society in Xinjiang and pretty much anybody, you know, that they want can actually just be put in, you know, hence millions of people being in there. I mean, academics have been put in there, you know, um, is I mean, artists, pretty much everybody from every aspect of life in Xinjiang, you know, has been uh, or could be put in to one of these internment camps. Right. I mean, and it's also notable that now all of their public intellectuals are they're making a point of putting their public intellectuals in these camp as a way probably to um, censor criticism. I mean, considering that, though, considering China's ability to restrict information of what internally happens in the country, how do we actually know these things? And can you speak to the reporting conditions in general in Xinjiang? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's instructive to think about what people within China, what their view of these places is. And, you know, in a, in a place, you know, where the media and the Internet are so tightly controlled, uh, most people in China, for for instance, only think of these places as, as good places, probably. You know, on TV, they're, they're, they're a, they have been shown footage of apparently happy or at least docile people in these re-education places where they're learning vocational skills. You know, where there are, you know, sports facilities and a cinema and hairdressing salons, and things like that. So there are these sort of strange Potemkin sort of village versions of the camps that have, you know, that are offered for consumption both internally. And, you know, I think last year they were, some foreign reporters were allowed in one as well. So, but however, the reason why we know this isn't the case, um, you know, is, is I guess from three sort of major sources of, of information. Uh, and so the most primary of which, and the initial one of which was reports from people who had been released from the camps uh, or who had been working in the camps. And most of those uh, people uh, were in Kazakhstan um, after coming out. And there they started sort of sharing their stories about what had happened. And, you know, there's a, an incredible convergence in these testimonies. If you go onto the Human Rights Watch or Amnesty websites, you'll find you know, and you read these harrowing testimonies, but there is this great sort of convergence and, and um, you know, in terms of their descriptions about what life is like inside these places. Um, and then I guess the second one is that we can physically, we've, we've been physically able to see, you know, the construction of these, of these camps all over Xinjiang, uh, you know, over time using satellite sort of imagery. And they all show, you know, former schools, former factories or new facilities just literally sort of 
being built out of out of out of nothing often you know in a very short space of time you know there was so that's you know shows there's been a concerted attempt to create these things um and the other sort of side of it is um actually just from official government documents that um that show the incredible like amount of money that's been spent in recruiting people to to, to staff these places, you know, like huge increases in, in sort of essentially the custodial and the, 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 the police sort of budgets for all these areas. Um, uh, there has also been a little bit of video smuggled out of, of some stuff in, in the camps, um, which is, uh, you know, maybe sort of not quite as clear about what's happening in some of those videos. Um, but, but yeah, um, in terms of, what foreign reporters can actually do in Xinjiang. Uh, basically, any any foreign reporter who goes in there will be followed around all day and often obstructed from going to certain places. Their footage can be confiscated. They can just be kind of detained and then deported. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen just this week with the Wall Street Journal uh, reporters who've just been kicked out of China as well for their reporting of the coronavirus. You know, like... I mean, there's, there's, you know, China has multiple ways to, to, to sort of deal with foreign reporters, you know, ranging from obstruction to just kicking them out, you know. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there have been, you know, I mean, obviously people in Xinjiang are incredibly frightened and, and it's incredible risk for them to be seen talking to a foreign journalist or maybe just even any foreigner at this point. Um, but you know there have been some some people who have been able to get some some testimony from brave people you know who's who either have been in the camps or who have relatives who have been in the camps um so we also know you know a lot a lot of stuff that is um far more than just anecdotal that it's you know that it all kind of coheres in a way that's that's far more than suggestive about what's going on in there um there's a there's a great piece by a guy called Gene Bunin who spent a lot of time uh, in Xinjiang just talking to people mostly in restaurants quite informally, and that that gives a really good sort of sense of um, of just sort of how uh, just how devastating this has been for Uyghur and and Kazakh and other communities within Xinjiang. Were people opening up to him in these more casual contexts, or was it is it was he just sort of inferring? what people were not saying uh, a bit of both a bit of both um i think a lot of the time people you know was were speaking quite indirectly um which is the same way that people you know tend to to talk about these things on the internet in china as well you know i mean you know for all the incredible surveillance in china you know not every word that's typed from a computer can be seen and there is a kind of a constant sort of arms race if you like between people looking for you know ways to sort of say things without saying them as well um so so yeah there is this sort of i mean obviously i think this is probably a, a sort of a, a tension between people being on the one hand terrified of, of of speaking about what's happening to them and their relatives and their friends but also having a, a need to actually say this you know look this is happening um people need to know and I mean, I know that you didn't really do that much interviewing for this book and not in China. Um, you interviewed people in the diaspora. But what I mean, what was your personal experience just walking around China, living there as a journalist, but also as a foreigner? I mean, were people willing to talk to you or were they a bit more reserved? Um, I think there was certain I mean, it was sort of a, it was a movable thing, really. It sort of depended how well you knew the person sort of where you were. I mean, when I lived in Xinjiang, you know, uh, you know, almost sort of 20 years ago, when I first went there, even then, you know, there were a lot of topics that, that could not be talked about um, amongst, amongst you know, both Uyghur and Han. And it was all, it was quite hard to sort of often to sort of, to know how to broach things. And you, you sort of, after a while, you start almost censoring yourself and almost avoiding the sensitive topics. So it's sort of, um, you know, it perpetuates itself. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, I guess anyone who's lived in, in China or spent any time there will know that, that, that people in China are not afraid to speak negatively about all many aspects of the system. You know, there are very few people who would not 
not admit that there is widespread corruption in China, for example. Like that is a safe thing to say, partly because the government also says it too. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a question of who you think is corrupt and how and how extensive and deep the corruption goes. Um, you know, so like there are there are all kinds of topics that are. You know, you are allowed to talk about. You are allowed to acknowledge that the country has problems. For example, you know, it's um, it's a question of of how you do it and who you blame, and um, you know, I and even I. But the, the tricky the tricky thing is for people is a sort of the red line about what's acceptable is always shifting, and even people in the media don't really know. You know, so so an editorial that maybe you wrote six months ago, which was fine and wasn't censored, can suddenly get you in trouble later on. Um, you know, which is a sort of, sort of classic sort of Stalinist thing, you know, where, yeah. you know, you, you, you know, the, there's no statute of limitations on anything you ever say, really. Um, you can always go back and find something. Um, and that, that, that does sort of inculcate a sort of a reserve, if you like, you know, and I think especially older people in China tend to have, you know, very long memories of, 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 you know, Maybe now, not of sort of Maoist sort of time, but of but of but of a, but of times when the goalposts have shifted, if you like, um, you know, especially under Xi Jinping, where you know, in many aspects, freedoms have been curtailed that were beginning to to grow. You know, that's that's sort of that's a very sobering lesson for a lot of people, I think. Right. Actually, on that note, I mean, how has President Xi Jinping's policies differed from his predecessors? Um, in in this context, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, so you know, up until sort of two thirteen, two thousand thirteen, two thousand sort of fourteen, you know, there was there was a sort of a, a sort of a slightly distorted semblance of normal life in in Xinjiang. You know, I mean, there were a lot of um, a lot of restrictions on people's daily lives. You know, there was a very heavy police and military presence on the streets. But, you know, like there was, you could go shopping, you could go to, to the mosque, you could, you know, there was, there was sort of was, you could lead, you could sort of almost lead a, a semi sort of normal life, if you know, if you like. But after Xi Jinping took over and also um, after Xinjiang got a new, a new sort of top official, uh, Chen Guanguo, um, you know, those two sort of, sort of shift, if you like, um, you know, led to, you know, a massive crackdown on, on, on daily life in Xinjiang. It's sort of 2014, 2015, when these huge digital surveillance networks start being sort of, um, sort of transplanted into the centers of, of major cities in Xinjiang. You know, that's when, um, you know, there's a lot more public campaigns against, uh, you know, against religion, against how, how women dress, Against um, against uh, you know many aspects of Uyghur culture um, in, in academia, so so there's you know as in the rest of China under Xi Jinping, there's a tightening of the screw and there's a sort of a shift sort of back to you know an attempt to uh, actually control you know people's sort of ideological if you like sort of horizons, you know um, you know it's not you know people will no longer just being asked to sort of be good consumers and be sort of quietly good citizens, a lot more was suddenly expected of people, not just in Xinjiang, but, but throughout China. So, so what happens in, has happened in Xinjiang under Xi Jinping is consistent with what's happened throughout the country in some ways, but in other ways, it's far more extreme. And it suggests that there is, um, that Xinjiang under, you know, under Xi Jinping and perhaps under previous um, officials as well is essentially seen as a problem that has to be solved that there aren't just these sort of few bad apples that have to be targeted you know that now essentially under Xi Jinping Uyghurs are Uyghurs Uyghur to be Uyghur as an identity with all that entails is now itself the problem so the camps are one aspect of of this attempt to sort of solve the problem of Uyghur being Uyghur. And, and by that, I mean, you know, if you think about what, what an identity involves, it involves everything from the language you speak to what you believe or don't believe. It, it involves how you dress, 
Uh, it involves your leisure time, um, your cultural books you like to read. I mean, pretty much every aspect at this point of being Uyghur in Xinjiang is essentially seen as problematic by the state. And even if you have not been put into a camp, uh, pretty much every other aspect of, of your life is, has been or will be most likely, you know, essentially seen as problematic. So, so under Xi Jinping, there has been this qualitative shift in, in the response to Xinjiang, which is, um, you know, quite, quite, um, it's quite startling in the way that it sort of has conceptualized what they see as the problem of the region. Um, I mean, there's been a debate within, I mean, I should say, of course, that the Chinese Communist Party is a very opaque institution where you can, we've often struggled to even understand what that there might be debates, let alone the content of the debates within, uh, you know, the organization. However, you know, from reading sort of official Communist Party sort of journals and speeches, you know, like we've been able to sort of figure out that there has been some kind of debate about, if you like the orthodox Marxist view on, on, on the issue of ethnicity in China, you know, and one, 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 um, sort of one, one school of thought has been that sort of ethnicity is this kind of sort of retrograde thing that will sort of naturally fade away, you know, as you build a strong country and ever, and as you sort of homogenize the country sort of politically and socially. And so, and so as, as a problem, it would just quietly go away on, on, as a result of doing other kinds of things. And then the other kind of school of thought has been that actually ethnicity is something that's standing in the way of development and that you have to then, you know, essentially try and actively try to eradicate it. And until maybe sort of 2000, 2014, you know, it wasn't quite clear maybe where the policy was headed. There was some debate. Um, you know, but, you know, everything that Xi Jinping has done since taking office suggests that, that there's really, there's nothing really that they want to preserve about Uyghur or Kazakh identity or probably any other ethnic identity in China. And that all these things essentially should go away um, and everybody should just be a Chinese citizen first and foremost. Nothing else should really matter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... um it could, you know, under Xi Jinping, it couldn't really be a starker difference. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, you've probably hinted at the answer to this already, but do, do you think that this is China's main motivation for spurring ethnic violence in this current context? Because clearly, as you have explained, the tensions between the government and the Uyghurs has existed for a long time now. Yeah, I mean, the tensions have been there. Um, but in terms of the violence, I mean, I think we should, I should sort of say something about that because, um, like the way that, that Xinjiang is, you know, is often characterized in the media, you know, as, as this sort of violent, dangerous sort of place, sort of like, like China's, you know, Chechnya or, or something, you know, like, mm. and, um, like the reality of it has been, it's been very different. I mean, you know, there have been, um, you know, there have been a number of sort of violent incidents over the last three decades, you know, but, but the majority of time there, the, you know, the dissent and the tensions there, you know, have not been expressed in, in terms of violence at all. Um, and when violence has broken out, it, it has tended to be in sort of quite sporadic, spontaneous ways that are not sort of um, not the result of any sort of great organized, you know, terror group, for example. You know, it tends to be things like there's a village and somebody's, somebody's son has been arrested. Uh, and, you know, because the police, you know, have a bad record, you know, often people being arrested sometimes disappear and never come back. Um, often then people will go to the police station, like local, you know, people, re um, relatives, and they might say, for example, you know, protest against, you know, the, the detention of the, of, of, of the son. And then maybe, you know, a, a police person would, might, might fire, a, you know, at them and somebody might be killed. And then there would be a violence or a confrontation. So these are sort of a lot of the incidents that, that have happened there have tended to seem to have been in this kind of pattern. Um, so, so the violence is sort of something that is, that is something that's, I think of it as something that is like, like, you know, a pressure cooker that it, that at times the tension has built 
and the resentment has built and that has resulted in these sort of uncontrolled often pieces of violence um and it's really only a few incidents um you know recent incidents like the attack on the Kunming train station in 2014 and some bombings in Urumqi in uh, 2014 and 2015 which actually looked like what we might think of as a terrorist incident you know um but it's very easy to look at those incidents and then think oh yes everything else is terrorism which is essentially the chinese government's sort of view so you know finally to get back to your question i mean <laughs> I, I don't think that i don't think that the i don't think that necessarily the government are trying to provoke violence as such but i don't think the violence i don't think they mind very much because it only bolsters their narrative if you like um i think it's that they anticipate you know naturally that there will be some resistance and resentment against their policies but they're not really you know there's no chance that they're going to lose control of the region the region is the most heavily policed heavily militarized part of china you know um that was even true you know 10 15 years ago and it's even more true now so at this point, anything that happens, they will be able to control very easily. And the violence is, um, as long as it stays within certain boundaries, I think, is um, is not really like an issue for them. Um, however, interestingly enough, there have been reports in the last sort of six, nine months um, since I finished the book that some of the most sort of visible um, securitization and sur- especially surveillance in Xinjiang has been slightly scaled back a bit. Um, uh, there will still be lots of soldiers on the streets, people say, and there's still, you know, like checks on people's phones and things like that. But there has been a suggestion that, that there has been a slight, not an easing off by any means, but a slight shift in the way that the state is asserting itself within Xinjiang. And the reason for that, I think, is not because they're worried about violence. I think they're more worried about the fact that, that locking up several million people, you know, has had a massive effect on the economy of the region. And, you know, that people from inner China, internal migrants from China who have were living in Xinjiang have been leaving because they can't do business either under these conditions as well. So so if if there is a kind of a constituency that, that the the government tend to be sensitive to in Xinjiang it's not Uyghurs or Kazakhs it's it's the Han Chinese who are there um those are the people who they you know are probably interested in trying to appease uh and they they're as good a reason if any why they don't want things to get too out of control Right I mean they must be sensitive to the economy both internally and externally I mean given on that note, given what we know about the camps, how have Muslim-majority countries reacted to the crisis? And has that shifted the way that China has uh, been implementing the camps at all? I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to know to what degree, you know, external opinion has, you know, can affect Chinese policy. Um, it would be lovely to think that, you know, that, that it can have a very direct and strong opinion, uh, a direct and strong effect if, you know, for example, as they did, the United Nations condemned the, the camps and expressed, you know, strong concern and all that. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's very hard to sort of read what, what really is going on at that level. Um, but in terms of um, like many, you know, some countries have come out quite strongly against um, against the camps. But um, but in most cases, this is not this has not gone beyond you know expressing concern, and and many you know Muslim majority countries uh, have not you know expressed great concern and have you know actually not not really seem to be too bothered, you know like you can contrast for example Turkey who in um, so 2010 sorry 2009 you know they were willing to call some actions of the Chinese state as being like a sort of a genocide. You know, whereas now they're like, um, you know, they, they, you know, the foreign minister said a few years ago, he said, uh, oh, we won't let anybody criticize, you know, China who lives in Turkey. You know, so like they have, you know, like it's as China has become more important as an economic power, you know, it's, um, you know, there's 
you know, many countries are not are not interested in in looking for sort of domestic support by opposing China. You know, it's it's only probably in places like America where the Republicans can make considerable political capital out of opposing uh, opposing China. You know that that it that it's sort of that it's sort of a good cause, if you like. You know, I mean, China, you know, China in that way is like where Russia used to be and still is. You know, it's a great enemy to attack. You know. And which you can do if you're a Republican in, you know, in America. But maybe if you're a politician in another country who has very strong trade ties with China and, and really relies on China, then maybe there's no, no reason for you to try and sort of make domestic political capital out of it. Um, you know, we can sort of look at, at for example, the, um, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is like an umbrella organization for, I think, like 53 different Islamic countries. And, you know, they have a website that anybody can go on, an English website, which has a list of things that they, you know, sort of are very concerned about or things that they sort of are worried about. And if you type like Uyghur or Xinjiang in there, you really get very little out of it. You don't get much about, if anything, about the camps. Whereas if you type in like the Rohingya or other or peoples or Palestinians, there's like pages and pages of stuff. So, so China's, you know, very central position in the world economy. Um, plus also its political support for many other countries that have very bad human rights records, you know, means that, you know, many countries have not been willing to sort of step up and are, are probably not going to either. Um, Hmm. I mean, well, speaking of Republicans, uh, how does Western Islamophobia, as opposed to Muslim countries, how does Islamophobia configure in the global community's reaction to the crisis? Well, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I, when I first wrote China's Forgotten People, when the first edition came out in uh, sort of 2015, you know, I was I felt like I was that, I felt like that book came out of a sort of a frustration, if you like with sort of the dominant sort of narrative, which was that Xinjiang was this place full of Islamist terrorists. And whilst there were some, you know, human rights violations there, nonetheless, China was sort of, you know, had its own part in the global war on terror. And, um, you know, so that was sort of, uh, um, that was was sort of like sort of the way that the place was viewed. And, no, I think there were some sort of U.S. congressional committees on China that, that did sort of express concern around, you know, human rights issues at that time. Um, you know, but, but I, but it, but that kind of story was, if you like, was kind of getting lost under the terrorism angle. Um, because it makes great news copy, you know. And so I guess sort of, I guess one of the reasons there was a sort of, that I wrote that, that first edition of the book was, was, uh, was that frustration about there not being enough context to say, yes, there have been some incidents recently, but this is by no means representative of what's going on. Now, with this new edition of the book, I feel that like, that firstly, more people around the world have actually heard of even who the Uyghurs are. You know, five years ago, it was an uphill battle to try and even get people to understand that there were Muslims in China. Um, but now with the camps, I feel that there has now, it's now sort of the spin on the spin on the story, if you like, in terms of the international media and within you know international politics, has now shifted in such a way that um, that there is you know a lot more sympathy for them. Um, so, in some ways, the story you know is the same. In some ways, it's different. Um, but um, I, I think it's you know it's it's for the better that 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 we're we're looking now more at you know what's going on there than rather than just you know, having these sort of opinion op-ed pieces, you know, about, you know, China's internal Taliban or whatever, you know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. For me, just from my vantage point as an American, it's interesting that this is all, what you're saying is interesting against the backdrop of, you know, Trump's Muslim ban, for instance, and the social capital that Republicans and conservatives in this country do get from invoking Islamophobic sentiment. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting that you're saying that there has been more sympathy in the media or more of an, a sense of urgency in Western media about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but in, in terms of, I guess, the, the, the forces within the Trump administration, it's only really like Rubio and a few other people who have really championed this cause, you know, of the Uyghurs. 
Um, and there's a lot of, in my own personal opinion, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't make common cause or, or approve of much of what Rubio does. But I mean, but it clearly has some, some political capital for him that he can be seen to be being tough on China. You know, now, whatever his motivations, I mean, it's a good thing, I think. That you know that the U.S. you know the Congress has passed resolutions against it. You know, I mean, I don't know how far it's going to go. I mean, for example, I mean, many many U.S. companies do considerable business with organizations or or businesses in Xinjiang. You know, like um, major corporations. You know, source a lot of their cotton from Xinjiang or their tomatoes for their ketchup from Xinjiang. You know, I don't know. Whether any, any, for example, American political figure is going to suggest that there should be, that shouldn't be allowed to happen and there should be some, some ban on, on, on sourcing from a place where there are these known violations of human rights. So, I mean, I guess to say, I, you know, in some ways, it's like there's, there can only be so much, the Islamophobia can only sort of be suspended for a certain amount of time, I think, you know, or for a certain extent. Mm. And for individuals, I mean, because we know so little, because it feels, I mean, yeah, no, because it feels like the international community has largely not done much to crack down on China because of its humanitarian, uh, its human rights violations. I mean, what are some ways that individuals can actually get involved and help? I mean, if you're an American, then you should, you know, talk to your congressman or your, or your, or your, um, you know, or to your, or to your senator, you know, and, and ask them to support what's going on in there. Um, I mean, if you're in other countries, you again should ask your, your elected representative to do something about it and to raise questions. Um, I think, I mean, you can be cynical and say, Oh, I'm not sure anything's going to happen, but, but I think it doesn't hurt to at least have it, keep it on the agenda when, you know, the agenda is constantly shifting and there are constantly things, you know, happening. I think, I think it's easy to sort of, slip out of the news for the story to slip out of the news cycle but it doesn't mean it isn't still happening um there are you know as a consumer you can do things you can not buy um cotton products that are sourced from from within china um uh i mean there have been lots of retailers who have directly profited from 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 you know from cotton source from China. So, you know, if you wanted to, you could ban, you could boycott H&M or Gap or Adidas or lots of other organizations. Um, I think in a way as a consumer is one of the most sort of powerful things that, that you, that you sort of, that you can do really is to sort of, is to not support these things and to make companies aware that there is a, there is a cost of them doing business with a repressive regime. Um, you can also sort of contribute directly to, to organizations that are helping to support not just the spreading of awareness, but also people who have been, um, you know, people and their families who have been affected by the camps. Um, there's, um, there's a, there's a, something called the Xinjiang Victims Database, which is collecting testimonies of people in the camp survive, of survivors. Um, and that's like an important way to sort of, uh, help publicize what's happening. And in some cases, those testimonies have helped, uh, to arrange the release of people from the camps. Um, I think there's also on a sort of more informal sort of level, I think there's a, it's important to try and find a way to engage with, um, people, uh, especially Chinese people who either don't know much about the camps or who think that the camps are a good thing and, and that are, you know, just sort of helping China. Like, especially if you live or, in a, or work on a, on an academic campus, I think that for a lot of Chinese young people, there's, you know, there's, there's sort of, they hear one thing, you know, from their own state media, and then they come here and they hear a bunch of other different things. And I think there's a, there's, it's, there's, it can be difficult to have a, a sort of a, a clear and calm debate with people who, who don't necessarily, you know, see the camps in the same way. But I think that, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, there are these terrible camps and your government's awful. Um, but that doesn't usually work out very well in my experience. <laughs> you know, you have to find some way to engage and just say, well, look, well, here's this evidence. What do you think of this? Um, so I think there's lots of things that people can do at different levels. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complex issue and it's, it's, you know, it's 
right now it's not quite on the top of the news agenda for for various reasons but it's an ongoing thing and i think that it's um i think that you know there is some i think it, it isn't going to go away for example so yeah it would be very good if people could could find some way to do something um well we only have time for for one more question but you've already kind of touched on this there's clearly so much going on in china right now it's not just the Uyghur camps, it's the global trade war and the, now the coronavirus. Um, there's just a lot going on, clearly. Do you, are, do you have any predictions or, or do you anticipate certain scenarios of how this will all play out for China internally and on the global stage in the coming years? Um, I mean, you know, the, 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 what is the future of China question is always, it's a great one. And I probably would answer it differently on different days. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that internally, the camps are probably not, not going to destabilize the regime at all. Um, I mean, they, I think, I think they, I think the camps, you know, in particular are, you know, are going to have a generational impact in Xinjiang in terms of, you know, the the damage it's done to people and communities and to any prospect of sort of better relations between the people of Xinjiang and the authorities. Um, so, you know, I I, I, I suspect that, that what the, the, the Chinese government think, thought of as their great solution to the problem is actually going to perpetuate and deepen the, the problem for the next few decades, if not longer. Um, in terms of like the, you know, the coronavirus and the trade war, I mean, the coronavirus is, uh, like I'm not an expert on this at all, but I, I think that it's not going to, again, it's not going to destabilize the regime. I think that there, I think it's, you know, like SARS didn't, didn't destabilize the regime and inarguably they've had a lot more practice since then in terms of how to manage these kinds of things. Um, I think they'll have a narrative that will, you know, that people will sort of not oppose very much. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, my mind starts to sort of spiral. It starts since I even tried to begin to think about the future of China. I mean, cause it could go so many different ways, you know. Um, I mean, like some of the surveillance technology that is being used in, in Xinjiang is used throughout China already. You know, there are facial recognition scanners, you know, there's, there are these social credit networks that people may have heard of. Like China could become considerably more authoritarian than it is right now. You know, that is one possibility. Or it could go, you know, it could kind of, it could slightly ease off a little bit, you know, as well over the next few years. I mean, it depends on so many different factors, both within and outside China, which is to sort of avoid the question, I guess, as well. But, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, but, you know, the, I guess this is one reason why China is, you know, endlessly fascinating for me is because, you know, it's the thing that I, the thing that I know most about and understand the least in some ways. So, I mean, um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of become less interesting. Mm. I mean, this might sound a little trite, but are you optimistic on certain days? Some <laughs> days. I mean, some days, like there are, there are lots of good things that have happened in China over the last sort of 50 years. You know, like if you look at the way the country was in 1949 compared to now, you know, it's an unbelievable story, you know, and you could concentrate on, on, you know, the lifting of people out of poverty, you know, the improvement in, you know, in, in daily living and medical facilities, you know, you know, but on a bad day, you could look at the way that the, you know, the Chinese environment is being like catastrophically polluted, you know, by having industrialization within several decades, you know, so, you know, the legacy of that is going to continue. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I'm optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Like, I think, I think there are no, none of these, none of these problems are insoluble, but, but the question is, you know, the, is the way in which they're going to be solved going to be more or less, um, I was about to say catastrophic for people. It's <laughs> not quite the right word, but, um, but, but more or less, you know, like how how will the how will ordinary people's experience, you know, be shifting in China? Will the gap between the rich and the poor begin to narrow? Because right now the gap between the rich and the poor is widening in China, especially between the you know the countryside and the city. So 
you know, it's, it's like they have a lot of the problems of, 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 a, of, a cap, of a normally capitalist country, but they have this almost unique kind of political system, which is either going to make it more difficult or, or easier to try and fix these things. Um, yeah, again, that's probably not much of an answer. No, I mean, it's a, it's a almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's a, there are endless possibilities. It really depends on so many different scenarios playing out, including outside of the country, you know, whatever this administration is in 2020 in November, I, I think that will probably also play an impact. But I, thank you so much for really illuminating me because personally, I didn't really know much about, um, the Uyghur crisis before reading your book. So, um, yeah, I feel really grateful to have been talking to you about this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I mean, I, you know, it's, um, like talking about these things is, is, you know, is, is stimulating for me as well. So. Great. Well, uh, to everybody listening, you can find Nick's book on Bloomsbury's website. It's China's Forgotten People, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you.